the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. America, over the last two generations now, some 50 years, experts argue, has slowly and methodically been killing itself. The problem is called obesity. From the days when we ate a healthy and wholesome diet, we have come to live to gorge ourselves at the buffet table. Assuming, since everything there technically is edible and tastes so good, it thus should be eaten. We have abandoned healthy eating and embraced a new, more appealing cookbook of chemically and genetically modified foods that last longer, taste better, and thus we ate more food of less quality, filled with empty calories or all the wrong calories, that while may taste good, are actually bad for us, and ultimately killing us. Medical experts warn if we don't change our diet and eating patterns soon, America will wind up one big, fat, lazy, useless, physically bankrupt nation. Now let's look at another similarly dangerous pattern of the last two generations. While the first is slowly bringing about our physical destruction, the second, more dangerous than the first, is bringing about our spiritual destruction. The problem is called sin and counterfeit doctrine. From the days when we read the Word, attended biblically sound churches, and embraced true discipleship, we have come to live to gorge ourselves at the buffet table of false teaching, assuming if it makes us feel good about ourselves, it must be true. We have abandoned sound doctrine and healthy discipleship and embraced a new, more appealing Bible of social gospel, word of faith, emergent church theology. We gorge ourselves on false teaching filled with empty promises and all the wrong doctrines that, while may make us feel good, are actually bad for the church and are ultimately spiritually killing us. And everyone who profits from marketing of this false teaching is actually an antichrist who makes out like a bandit selling nonsense and manipulated doctrine, all designed to give us an easy way out of God's design for salvation and sanctification. And the cycle of false teaching, an unhealthy church, begs for a reawakening once again. And sound biblical experts warn, if we don't change our theology and belief patterns soon, the church in America will wind up as one inept, lazy, useless, spiritually bankrupt institution. Joining me now in studio is author and theologian James Darnell. 57% of evangelical church attendees say they believe many religions can lead to eternal life. Of course, that is directly at odds with the mandate in John fourteen six that Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right. No one comes to God but through me. Mm-hmm. Your book, Saving the Saved, addresses what's happening in America's churches today. How do you respond to this shocking biblical disconnect? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on, and I really enjoy our conversations together. But the disconnect that you're talking about is, is, a, is, is an effort on the church, and especially church leadership 
and by that I'm talking about professional clergy and whatever, that have come to the place to believe that that they have an answer, that they have a, a way to approach the issues and the concerns that people are having today. And that means uh, they're going to have to share an idea that is different, that's a little fresher, uh, that comes at them uh, with a little bit of radicalness. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a way of looking at the gospel and the words and the teachings of the scripture in a way that says to people, you know what, uh, maybe we have something to offer here. Maybe, maybe what God expects us to do is take the bull by the horns here and um, work with this culture. Find a way to make things um, exciting for people to uh, become involved in the life of the church. Maybe we need to make some compromise. Nothing that would really hurt us doctrinally, but um, and we don't know where that may go, but, but well, let's start out with something a little bit different. So what they end up doing and that's what the book talks about, is that they end up in this battle of supremacy that has gone on for centuries between man's kingdom and what he believes is good and God's kingdom that is already there and already underway and already have been planned and moving forward. And now what we have is we have this conflict between these two kingdoms, uh, man's kingdom and God's kingdom, and saving the save, what it does it, in four chapters at the very beginning, uh, the the book is divided into uh, to three parts, and that very first part addresses this entire issue. And what it says is basically this: in four chapters, it outlines for people a way to understand what's happening to the church in America, and it under and we understand it from the perspective of a secular type of uh, of thinking. Uh, that's going on that says, look, um, we, have to, we have to become involved with the secular community, with the seekers, with the on-church folks. We have to bring them into our church. And you and I have had a show before uh, talking about these very issues with numbers as to what's happening across the country and people leaving the church. And, and what this has resulted in is the agenda of the church is now being uh, set and the mission of the church is now being described based on people who are not necessarily committed to Christ. There are two big buzzwords we hear these days. We hear much about tolerance. We hear a lot about inclusiveness. And yet, it seems to be at odds. You spoke about this, this sense of being at odds with two major opposing worldviews, or two kingdoms. God's kingdom with a capital K, man's kingdom with a small k. At odds here, too, must be on one hand tolerance and inclusiveness, and on the other extreme, as we see outlined in Scripture, very exclusiveness within the claims of Christ and Christianity. I mean, for example, the individual that approaches this from a very tolerant standpoint, bearing out this 57% of evangelical Christians who say, well, if God is really a loving God, then surely he will allow everybody who wants to seek him to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And yet, Christ is very exclusive in saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Narrow is the gate. So we really see at odds here, on one hand, inclusiveness and tolerance, mm-hmm. and the other, the exclusiveness that is at the core of God's plan for salvation. Absolutely. And it is exclusive. And the reason it's exclusive is because you have to make a choice as to how you're going to approach 
ministry. You cannot approach ministry with the Bible on the back burner. If you decide to do that, what that does is exactly what it describes in the second part of this book, which is it describes the subtle strategic persecution that is happening to Christians in this country who are unaware of what you just said, and they're, they're not clear about what has really happened and how we're becoming a, a godless nation when we have all these churches on every street corner and, and, and people are talking constantly. But here we have a public school system that has been infiltrated with these secular worldviews. We have the family that's being topsy-turvy, upside down, because uh, everybody's concerned about what you can say and what you can't say to a child and how you bring them up. We have the uh, problems with science. Here's a perfect example. Uh, we have a, a Christian community of scientists now that feel that they need to rewrite the first two chapters of the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2, because they need to include, because they are convinced that, that God just didn't happen to mention evolution, but he used it in, in putting together the universe, and so they're going to help him out a little bit and put in there this inclusive idea that man has designed and a theory that man has developed, and they're going to make this part of the Holy Word of God. Does this become sort of a theological Trojan horse? And I ask that question because there's a sense that if we stay to the exclusivity of the Scripture in terms of the origin of man, God's plan for salvation— there's that sense that, well, gee, when we preach it in such a narrow fashion, church attendance is cut in half. But if we take more of an inclusive approach to all of this, we allow then larger people to be exposed to the message because it's more user-friendly. It would almost appear as if it's a bit of a theological Trojan horse, and that what we're really experiencing here is we've seen this paradigm shift within, as you point out, many institutions, be it the church itself, public education, uh, the adaption of the church, of the culture, so that now the culture influences the church and as opposed to vice versa, mm -hmm. that a lot of this through seduction and subterfuge has come about. Absolutely. You hit the nail right in the head. That's exactly what's going on. And what has happened is pastors somehow feel that if they don't get on this bandwagon, they're going to be left out or they're going to be behind. And so they feel it's important that they learn how to do something new and fresh and bring something different to the church. Are we focused more on numerical results then as opposed to spiritual results? Because if the pastor down the street is reporting that their church attendance Sunday morning has doubled since they've become a, an emergent church, since they've become more seeker-sensitive, uh -huh. if that's the yardstick, is this part of the problem of what pastors are looking at? Absolutely. It's a major part of the yardstick. And matter of fact, if you go to the conference that the pastors are going to to learn how to do leadership with their church— they're told that this is the only yardstick, that basically to reach this new culture, this secularized culture, what you have to do is be inclusive. And not only that, but you have to be, in a sense, politically correct about some things. And you have to allow them to be who they need to be so they feel comfortable in the presence of God. James Darnell with us today in studio. Look at Saving the Saved, how the church's greatest omission led to a post-Christian America. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of the conversation as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline. Craig Roberts along with James Darnell. We're talking about a new book called Saving the Saved, How the Church's Greatest Omission Led to a Post-Christian America. 
You made a reference to leadership just before the break. And I'm curious, with all this focus that we see, and we've got many of these mega church conferences that take place, people are concerned about how can they become more effective. They want to be purpose-driven. They want to be seeker-sensitive, things of this sort. But it would seem that we're skipping over one important mandate, and that is that I see nowhere in Scripture where Christ says, go out and develop leaders. He does say to make disciples. Are we getting the cart before the horse here? Are we building a house of cards on a foundation that is non-existent because you have a church that is focused on leadership and how to become more effective at attracting the unchurched when Christ at the core is calling us to build disciples and reach the lost? Shepherding the flock is no longer important. What's important is how many people are getting hold of the message and are we expressing the new definition of extended love to everybody, no matter who they are, what they have done, what they are doing, or what they might do in the future. Extrapolate on that because it would seem to me if you're no longer shepherding the flock, that means the flock is free to go and eat at any pasture they wish, whether or not the grass is healthy for them or poisonous. Absolutely. And what we have here now in the church is an apostasy of the pastorate. Uh, it, it has come out of this, this secular notion of a pluralistic worldview that seems to be the global way of thinking. And we have set aside the Judeo-Christian worldview. And the Judeo-Christian worldview no longer is considered the foundation upon which Christ has built his church. It's now built upon the idea of unity. The best man has to bring to the table. And what is it that we know about God? And here's the interesting thing. God is not against knowledge. He wants us to see knowledge. There's plenty of things in Proverbs and everything else that tells us about the importance of knowledge. But with that comes wisdom. And what we're doing now is we're teaching the church somehow that what they can do, if they can just um, experience God in their own way, that the knowledge isn't quite as important. So therefore, you know, we, t- we take the authority of the scriptures and we kind of set that in the back burner. And we say, let's kind of experience God together. So what we do now is we, at the leadership conference, we come home with these ideas. Not only do I have a dream, not only do I think we should wonder and be into nature, but I also believe that we should use our imagination in interpreting the scriptures. Just think what it would be like. Can you imagine what it would be like for you if, if you designed the scriptures, if you taught the scriptures, if you learned the scriptures, the way it would be helpful to you? And ha- therefore, you could, you could be, live any lifestyle you want to live and still call yourself a Christian. And this is exactly what's happening. So we're repackaging the scripture to make it more palatable. We repackage the truth to make it more user-friendly, and yet isn't that Unitarian approach essentially denying the truth of the Scripture? Because suddenly now, with the Unitarian approach, that means that, well, we can all be right, and yes, there are many roads to heaven, and after all, wouldn't a loving God want to embrace anybody who is simply sincere about their approach? And if you talk about the exclusivity of the claims of Christ— isn't that intolerant? Doesn't that become suddenly uh, uh, language that is um, almost warlike to somebody else who doesn't believe the way we believe, doesn't interpret Scripture the way we interpret Scripture? Mm-hmm. And what it does is also it causes great division among the church and great confusion among the people who call themselves Christians and attend churches. The, the, the concern that I have here, and this is what 
uh, Saving the Save is all about. People ought to get this book and, and read the, these details because I've, I've gone to great length as a labor of love to try to lay this out in a logical way so that people can understand that what's happening here is they have everything they need. God has given them everything. When they have come to Christ, not only are they saved, not only do they have eternal life, not only uh, will they be raised and, uh, from the dead and, and all those wonderful things, but along with that is this whole process of sanctification and the Holy Spirit living in their life. And it's not about telling your story. It's not about saying, oh, well, this happened to me uh, 15 years ago and, 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 you know, I've come through these problems and these problems and these problems. Here's when your story starts. When you're redeemed, that's when the story starts. And so when you're redeemed, Christ has placed within you. Listen to Paul. He says, this is in 2 Corinthians, he, he, he talks about, now it is God who makes us who we are and stands firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit. For what reason? To guarantee the outcome. To guarantee what's going to come. Now, the interesting thing about that is, what is it that's in there that we are not shepherding, that we are not getting out, that we are not discipling? And the church refuses to talk about that. And here's what's in there. What's in there is what has happened to your heart, your regeneration, how you've received through the imputed love of Christ, his righteousness, how you have new character in your life, and what that character and blessing means taught by Jesus. How you become holy, how you practice holiness in your daily life, how you practice your communication now with your neighbor, how you love your neighbor, the transformation of your mind, and all the gifts that God has given you. These are all lying subtle inside uh, and, and, sub, uh, and subservient to the love that we want to have for Christ. And, and they're no longer brought to the forefront because man has a better idea. So is there a fundamental theological paradigm shift here where on one side we have the business of making disciples, preaching Christ crucified, his shed blood for the remission of sin, and on the other side we have the marketing of Christianity, which well, when you start to talk about this sin and offending God and God requiring shed blood for the remission of sin, yeah, that's kind of inconvenient from a marketing standpoint. That really doesn't go with the approach that's dictated by Madison Avenue. So mm-hmm. let's clean a lot of that stuff up and instead let's focus on how God can make you healthy and wealthy mm-hmm. or how you can feel better about yourself and be the popular person on the block because of the power of positive thinking. Absolutely. And that's what's going on. You, you've hit it again on the head. That's exactly where the church is going. The church has decided that if we can experience and imagine the Scripture, if you can tell your story, and you can sit in small groups and share with psychological and sociological principles how you feel and what you're experiencing in your religious life and in your spiritual growth, that that's all you need to be able to move forward in your faith as a Christian. And what we've done is we've left Christ out of that formula, and we've less, uh, left the Scriptures and what the Scriptures have taught out of that formula. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The truth now is what you believe, what you feel is best for you. That has become the new truth. And as far as, as life is concerned, uh, yes, we accept eternal life, 
but from that point forward, God sense God, God believes that we need to take a sense of responsibility ourselves. So now what we do is we take over our spiritual growth and we say, <clears throat> let's go help people. Let's let's get back in the action uh, business of the gospel. Let's try to find ways to love our neighbor. Let's do that. There's nothing wrong with those things. It's just it's out of the context in the way Christ said we should do it. And so we've decided that the scriptures are no longer the authority. And when you do that, anything goes, including uh, philosophies and, and new theologies and, and ideas. And uh, like I said in the conferences, that right now this is the time of year when the, all the conferences are being advertised. And young men from mega churches are going across the country and talking to pastors and congregations and things and telling them all about leadership, imagination, how to wonder, how to think about uh, things differently so that you can make your contribution to the kingdom of God. When in, in reality, they're doing exactly what you said. They're going down the broad path. And they're not going to be able to end up where they think they're going to end up. And a lot of people are going to be misled. And a lot of people are not going to get the solid foundation that they need to have. And the pastors, for all intents and purposes, have going out, uh, gone out of the shepherding business, the d- discipling business. They're now uh, – these, these conferences that they go to and the activities and the, the money that the church is laying out uh, for programs and all the rest of it, this is costing churches a fortune. And not only that, <laughs> but the end result – is not going to be any different than was the end result with the uh, former church movement by certain pastors who who went after the unchurched and whatever. We find now that those churches are closed or sold and the pastors are gone and all the rest of it. This is just another version of that same effort and that same desire to grow the church. It's all about numbers. And what do we have here? And if we have happy people who are giving their tithe, and are doing fun. We don't need to go deeper. Who needs to have a deeper spiritual relationship with Christ? Uh, you got the church. You have us. We have each other. Why do we need anything else? That's the thinking. James Darnell with us in studio. A look at Saving the Saved, how the church's greatest omission led to a post-Christian America. Information, by the way, about the book on the web at savingthesaved.com. That's savingthesaved.com. A brief time out. Back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. James Darnell today in studio with us. A look at Saving the Saved, how the church's greatest omission led to a post-Christian America. More information, by the way, on the book at savingthesaved.com. That's savingthesaved.com. We were talking about this paradigm shift that we've seen take place in the church today. I'm curious, as we sort of take the the yardstick to the moral health of America today, as we take the patient's temperature, so to speak, we we see that we are in this moral quagmire at at, at many levels. Um, We are victims of moral uh, relativism. Is this the product of the slippery slope of theological relativism that has said it's not so much about preaching the exclusive truth of the claims of Christ, but rather the inclusive approach? Because after all, we want people to feel good about themselves, because if they don't feel good about themselves, Mm -hmm. they won't show up to church on Sunday. Mm -hmm. Yes, you're right. And I I also think that it has a – there's within inside that kind of a secret – uh, type of uh, movement 
to eliminate words like sin and uh, uh, words like rebellion and disobedience and uh, what we would call the old orthodox kind of way of looking at our faith. Yeah, when's the last time and, the preacher from the pulpit used a term like atonement? There you go. Or a propitiation. That's right. These, these words are being uh, set aside and, uh, interestingly enough, not being replaced. The, the words now are love, 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 forgive, forgive, and forgive, and uh, be inclusive, and, and, and love your neighbor as yourself. So uh, things like, uh, the, the, for example, the, the, the Ten Commandments uh, are not even looked at anymore. Uh, and really, half of those commandments, you know, are about the love that Jesus uh, prescribed for us, and the other half are, are about the love that God has for us. And yet, at the same time, when Jesus answered that question for the Pharisees, what, 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 they, he, he, he said to them, look, the commandments are all wrapped up in just two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbors yourself. What that was was a combination of all ten of the commandments that Moses uh, had written down from God, and he brought that all together. The Pharisees didn't catch it; they weren't they, they they didn't quite understand what he was trying to say. But the interesting thing is, as he went on to teach his disciples, and as he became the head of our church today, and Paul began to unwrap some of Jesus's teachings, what we find out is is that it's important that a person knows what they're repenting from, where they're coming from, why they are sinful, why we were created the way we were created, and what happened to us at the very beginning. And as they follow that through the Scripture, they see that they, all the Scripture, from Genesis 1 the whole way through to Revelation, is all about Christ. It's all about Him, His plan of repentance, and it's about the, the God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together to bring us back into a relationship with Him. And what the church has decided to do today is to say, look, if you want to be a Christian, fine. Some churches even just, just pray this prayer right after me. And you say, the Lord, congratulations, you're a champion, you're in. And then they move forward with their agenda, their values, their plan, their idea, in order for us to make the contribution. And I can't overestimate that. The whole issue here is, is what is it that we have to offer? And when we do that, what we do is we say, it's not about Jesus anymore. He's done what he's going to do. It's about us and what we can offer and what we can do. That's why you see some of the major pastors uh, that are out there today uh, in swallowing the whole idea of universalism and some of the other concepts that are going on because they they actually believe that they can make a contribution that could perhaps even change God's mind. But if our central focus is not on man's sinful fallen condition having offended a holy righteous God and the need for shed blood for remission of sin for reconciliation unto God that leads to relationship, if that fails to be the central focus, then doesn't this become much like 
simply performance-based religion? It's behavior modification? And then in which case, what sets us apart from any other cult out there that does the same thing? There are plenty of cults out there that teach, hey, don't beat your wife. It's not good to drink and smoke. Take better, better care of your bodies. Pay your taxes on time. I mean, that's all performance-based. Mm-hmm. But what it does is, is it's performance-based, and it is behavior modification. And um, it, it, it's a way of – I don't know how to say it other than to say it's a way of bringing man to a level where he feels being made in the image of God, he now has the right to control his life and the way things get done. So it's no longer about servitude to the Lord, but rather the roles are flipped. Suddenly now God becomes a a cosmic bellhop who is at our disposal to meet our every whim, Mm -hmm. make sure that we are fully satisfied in life so that if we're not as healthy as we want to be, wealthy as we want to be, we just go and say, hey, God, what's the deal here? Aren't I supposed to be abundantly blessed? One major preacher, I won't name any names, but he's based in Houston, Texas, (laughs) announced recently from the pulpit that the core purpose of Christ's coming was to give us abundant life. Well, there you go. That's but a perf- that isn't what the Bible teaches. No, but that's a perfect example of where man makes his contribution. He has given us abundant life. We, we, what Jesus tries to teach his disciples and then his disciples uh, passed on, not only to the Jews, but also Paul, being a Jew, passed on to the Gentiles, was the whole idea of character, and that's where that comes from. It comes from Jesus' teaching on character. And what Jesus said is, yes, there's a blessing that goes with the character, but what we have done is we've decided not to take the biblical interpretation of what that really is. What we've decided to do was redefine it. So if you feel good, if you are experiencing a, a good religious moment, if you are worshiping and you are happy, if you are uh, financially blessed and whatever, then you're doing things right. If you're not within that abundant living, which is not what that means at all in Scripture, but if you're not within that abundant living, then what you've done is, is uh, you need to give more, you need to uh, perhaps do more good deeds. You need to um, uh, fellowship more in a way that will help you to grow up and mature as a Christian. And they would say, function in the kingdom of God more uh, by your tithes and by your offerings and by your works. Well, what's the difference between that then and uh, the approach of, of creating an industry as opposed to building God's kingdom? Yeah, that's exactly what they've done. They've built a church industry. And that's what these, these leadership conferences that pastors are going to today, the, the, the majority of them are all about you becoming a leader that can lead your flock to a new level, a higher level of responsibility and accountability for who you are. And they never talk about who you are in Christ. It's who you are and what you have to offer each other and what you have to offer God. How you see yourself, how others see you, as opposed to how God sees you. Absolutely. It has nothing to do with how God sees you. It's, it's almost like it's passe. You know, Jesus went to the cross. He died for your sins. Wasn't that wonderful? You know, he gave you eternal life. That's even nicer. But now culture has changed. Uh, um, we're more sophisticated now. Uh, science is our, uh, is our God. And what we need to do now is we need to understand how we can make our contribution 
how we can do it without God. That's why we we spend a lot of time at the very beginning of Saving the Saved uh, talking about what are the laws and the beliefs of a secular society that knows that the way they can get done what they want done is to compromise the church. And second of all, uh, knows that if they take the church and get it compromised, they can then have the end result, which is a, a godless nation. And that godless nation and a compromised church allows uh, a new uh, way of governing, uh, not only globally, but in America, but also in a person's personal life. The thing we're missing here is, and, and that they're missing, is this is not a, um, a collective salvation approach. Uh, God is looking at us individually. And each person has to be accountable to God for who they are and what their life, how they've lived their life and what their life is all about. And, and what the church is doing now is making it more of a collective salvation. So that, you know, if we're doing a lot of good things together and if we're thinking the right things and if we're imagining what could happen, uh, a lot of books out today, imagine this, imagine that, imagine heaven, imagine hell. I mean, you know, what's that all about? And what that's about is helping people to let loose of the scriptural understanding of things and help them to use who they are to try to determine what they want to experience of a relationship with their God. So the Bible then goes from having been foundational to the theological underpinnings of the church to a companion reference guide. It's it's a side manual. It's uh, yeah. some interesting notes that we can quote from that perhaps has a nice poetic flow to it. Let's get up and recite a passage or two out of the book of Psalms. That makes us all feel good. Yes. But let's not dare use that yeah. as the funda- foundational underpinning yeah. of our faith. And the Bible is no longer, uh, in, in many uh, thinking of many pastors and churches across America, which Barna has made very clear in his studies, that over 51% percent of them uh, do not hold a uh, biblical worldview. Fifty-seven percent of evangelicals believe that there are many ways to get to heaven. So Absolutely. So there you go. That gives you an idea of what's happening and how powerful it is and how it's really affecting what's going on in the life of a, a Christian today. There's no wonder why people out there are confused. It's no wonder why they go to their church and when you, we tell them to be salt and light, they're saying, oh, well, my pastor wouldn't have that. Uh, we're, we're in the middle of a dream and putting together our new core values and and uh, uh, doing our leadership like they do at uh, at um, you know uh, one of the major companies Chevron or something. That that's what the church is all about. It is not. It's it's become a community center to be able to deal with issues in the local community, but to deal with them with the very best knowledge that man has to offer and to put that little tag on you that says Christian. And when that tag Christian is there, even though they're being persecuted for it now, they believe that over a period of time that will eventually melt away because the new definition of what a Christian is will not include an infallible, inerrant scripture. It will not include uh, a Savior that has brought us from sin to salvation. It will not include any kind of living style, our sanctified life, our holiness, or whatever. We will be moral in terms of what morality is, plurality and morality is accepted within our society. James Darnell, a look at Saving the Saved, How the Church's Greatest Omission Led to a Post-Christian America. The book available on the web. More information at SavingTheSaved.com. That's SavingTheSaved.com. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline. James Darnell with us today. A look at his new book, Saving the Saved, How the Church's Greatest Omission Led to a Post-Christian America. More information available on the web at savingthesaved.com. That's savingthesaved.com. You made reference to this moral morass that we currently find ourselves in, and there seems to be an interesting shift that has taken place here, where traditionally, as the church looked at the culture, the desire was to impact the culture and change the culture. But as you're suggesting, it seems today as if more of our approach seems to be pacifying the culture and embracing the culture, sort of this, well, if you can't beat them, join them approach. Yes, that's exactly why we put together this company called Netaffirm, because Netaffirm ha- is, is a word that describes bringing people together under the scriptures. What, what is happening in a church is they're bringing people together under the church. Now, the interesting thing about that is, is that, yes, a pastor is willing to say or a church leader is willing to say, um, I believe that Christ is the foundation of the church or, or, or Christ is the cornerstone of the church. But that's as far as they take it. Uh, what they do now is they take it and they say, yes, Christ is the cornerstone of the church, but we are asked to imagine what that church can be like in our society. And therefore, by embracing society, um, let me give you an example. Um, you know, I, I, I pastored for, you know, uh, many, many, many years. Uh, but uh, now I enjoy just talking to pastors and, and finding out what they're going on. And I had a pastor just a few days ago say this to me. Um, I had a conversation with a person who's living a, um, a lifestyle that is uh, not in agreement with Scripture or with the teachings of Christ. And that person argued with this pastor for an hour that they are a Christian, that they are committed to Christ, that Christ died on the cross for them, and they have an alternative lifestyle that Christ has accepted because it's part of who they are and what their life is all about. And therefore, uh, there is not this exclusiveness that, that the older Orthodox uh, religion of America uh, tries to push on people or are, are used to make people feel bad about themselves, what they're doing now is, is they feel that the church needs to be changed. It needs to get with the culture. It needs to, to come up to a level where God is, is seeing people and forgiving them and loving them and accepting them regardless of how they're living their life uh, but it, more than that, regardless of how they feel about growing in their relationship to God and, and functioning in the kingdom, the Scripture makes it very clear that our job is to be discipled so that we can disciple others into the kingdom, both evangelistically and through discipleship, so that we grow in our per- personal faith. That's not the goal of the church anymore. Matter of fact, uh, There's a subtitle to this book. It says, How the Church's Greatest Omission Led to the Post-Christian America. The greatest omission is discipleship. And when I go places to talk about discipleship, they look at me like, uh, what do you mean? 
Or what is the or perhaps they ponder and say, oh, you mean membership class? Oh, it, oh yeah, there, we know what that is, membership class. They have no idea. The, the, the church today, when you talk about discipleship, and of course this is not exclusive with every church, are, are you know, inclusive of all churches. Uh, uh, there are many good churches out there and many pastors with great hearts doing the right thing. And I want to say that up front. But at the same time, it's overpowering what is going on in our country with this idea that words like discipleship, sin, Jesus Christ— infallibility of the scriptures are all out the door. Now, let's be cautious about something here. We have been down this path before. Paul's warnings to the church at Corinth. We had the Reformation, the First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening. What is different about the spiritual crossroads that we're at today, um, where we see the, the church finding itself knowingly or perhaps unknowingly in this position? The big omission, as you speak to, is this lack of biblical discipleship. So then it begs the ultimate key foundational question. We're at this crossroads again today. What do we do to bring the church back on track so that it comes back in alignment with not some church growth seminars, I notion of what the church looks like, but rather with what God says he wants the church to look like. Yeah, let's just focus that just a little bit more because you're, you're right you're on something that's critical uh, to where we're going. And that is, if you as a Christian are waiting for the church and the pastor to do this right, it may never happen. Uh, yes, there are some churches that are really excited and want to do it right and want to stand up against the culture and want to uh, carry the word forward. But what can you do if, if this is happening where you are and you see these words being espoused from the pulpit and you see the kinds of things that are going on in the church and you know uh, that there's something wrong and the more of your faith, which you know is spiritual growth, you're just not getting there. It's not coming to you. So what do you do? Here's, here is what I believe are the three alternatives. There may be others. But first of all, you can stay where you are and try and be salt and light. And... Um, as, as Einstein would say, good luck, <laughs> because that's not the facts that are going to change the, the environment. It, you, you, you do, there's no way that, that you alone as salt and light in a community that has bought in to this pluralistic worldview is, is going to be able to make a, a, a great significance there, a change. But I'm not saying you can't be salt and light there, but I'm saying that to, to make the church change, that's just not going to happen. The institutional church is strong in this direction. The second thing is that you find a church where they are discipling. And you can leave, and you can go to that church, and you can say, look, I want to go deeper in my faith. And I know that's a dirty word some places. So this is what we're talking about. Then there's a third alternative. You can find other Christians who believe what you believe. And know that there's something more. And you can get them together. I call it the rise of the fellowship. It's the last chapter in the book. And the rise of the fellowship says basically this, that you you are in a place in your life. There is hope for the church, and, and there are many churches that are going to change. There's absolutely no doubt about it. But the the church itself, as a community institution, has an agenda. And that agenda has been set by maybe conferences, denominations, by pastors, by leaders, uh, by conferences, uh, that kind of thing. That agenda is not going to change. What's going to have to happen is the people 
are going to have to make the changes. You pull us essentially back to the model of what the first century church looked like. Right. That's exactly where we're going. The Sadducees and the Pharisees were not about to change. Uh You got it. But the people said, we've seen him, we've experienced him, we've walked in fellowship with him, Mm -hmm. we wish to be disciples of his. Yep. Exactly. What I did in this chapter, as chapter 12, and, and uh, you can get this thing and read it for yourself. It's just fascinating. I went back to 1979 when I was in, in a particular pastor, and I talked about the, the pressures of the denomination and the organization on me as a pastor to do what they wanted done. And uh, even though you have some autonomy in a church, perhaps you started a church in your garage or in your home and all the rest of it, if you're inclusively pulling in the community with the hopes that somehow they'll be evangelized by sitting under your message, um, that is no longer, is no longer, how do I say this nicely? It's, it's, it's just something that doesn't happen. What happens today is the church, when they bring people in or allow people to come in with certain feelings like, I need to have more abundance in my life, I, I, I have financial and physical needs. I have this, and God needs to supply these for me. When those kind of people are attending the church, they're not interested in what Jesus did on the cross. What they're interested in is what God can do for me now. And, and that's what it's all about. And if you can't do it at that church, they may find it comfortable enough to get up and leave and go somewhere else. So what I did was I shared how I did this, I started with the youth, since I was not allowed to do it with the, the adults. And what I did was I got them into fellowships. Not a church, not a Bible study, not a small group, not a, a lifelong learning organization. But what I got them into was a simple fellowship. And what we did is we talked about the genuineness of a relationship with Jesus Christ, what that looks like. And then all the things that Christ has done for me— who am I in Christ? So you're essentially fostering an environment where true discipleship can take place. That's correct. And what happened was that youth group in that over 2,000-member church of, of 25 young people, 25, three years later, were 375 kids. And they were junior high and senior high coming together. Why? I wasn't going out in street corners preaching. I wasn't preaching from the pulpit. I was the youth director. What was I doing? What I was doing is I was building in Christ into their life, and I was showing them how to be a disciple. I was teaching them character, holiness, righteousness, the fact that Jesus said, be ye perfect as the Father in heaven is perfect. It is possible for us, through the power of the Holy Spirit in us, to do a lot of wonderful, great things that can transform not only our lives, but the lives of others around us. And then you get phone calls 30 years later from a young woman who is now married to a pastor and says, you know, Pastor, I I never told you this, but, you know, I I grew up without a father. And my fellowship became my father. You were like a father to us. And I felt, how interesting. I had no idea. I didn't know that about her and her life and her family. But the fellowship became an organization that helped her to see Christ in her life and to grow in that relationship. They were accountable to each other, and they learned to grow. So, Some pastors uh, would be happy to have 375 
uh, people just in a church. And these were youth that grew from a very small core. And that same principle that Paul used in developing the churches in the Scripture, which is what chapter 8 is all about, Paul and how he did it, can be applied today and can be applied today through starting small fellowships in the church and starting small fellowships outside the church. Those same kind of things. The, the plan of Christ for our personal life and for the church is not to do it our way. He has a way. And when we get into that way and do it his way, great things happen. And they happen in the lives of people, and people are blessed. And if they understand anything about Jesus' teaching about character, you, you want to be blessed financially, you want to be blessed uh, spiritually and, and with healing and all the other kinds of things. Once you've got an understanding of how those things work, they're all the beatitudes. They're not the be happy attitudes. They're not the, 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 the attitudes that make you feel good about yourself. They're not the attitudes that give you abundant life. That's not the right. They're the attitudes that help you to learn how to depend on Christ for your life and how you react to that when people persecute you and when you have to suffer for that. And Christ rewards you for that. And so these are the kind of things that the church can do now. You're asking, what can we do? This is what we can do. If you're lucky, you get a pastor like the one I spoke to you about uh, earlier out in Idaho who um, has figured out uh, Jim uh, uh, Putman, who is, uh, with, uh, wrote a book called Real Life Discipleship and has transitioned his entire church into a real-life ministry, uh, it, being able to do everything that the church does being a mission of discipleship. Calling the church back to its first love, calling the church back to teaching true disciples. Mm -hmm. A look at Saving the Saved, how the church's greatest omission led to a post-Christian America. Its author has been my guest on this edition of Lifeline, James Darnell. More information on the book, by the way, simply go to the web. It's savingthesaved.com. That's savingthesaved.com. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 